Blog Talk Radio. My guest is an author, artist, blogger, and a model among the many hats she wears. She's known by many names, but most widely called Little Alice. We'll be talking about two of her books, Geisha Hands and Freya's Baby, among other things. Alice, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we were supposed to meet uh, in March, I believe, at Cleveland Concoction, but uh, COVID-19 put an end to that. And uh, you are a number, one of the number that I've been uh, buttonholing for coming on the program, and I appreciate it. Um, definitely going to talk about some of uh, the other elements of, of, of you as we go along. But um, the attention, along with the convention, uh, came two of your fiction works and the first one that really got me was the historical novel Geisha Hands, because many of my works are set in Japan, and I had to begin about asking your interest in the nation and also the subject. Absolutely. Um, my interest with uh, the country of Japan and the history and the culture and just everything about it um, started when I was a little kid in elementary school, just you know, rushing home from school to watch anime on Cartoon Network, and from there, I just began devouring all of the books they had available on the subject um, at the library, and it just kind of mushroomed from there. Wow. Well, what kind of shows did you watch? Oh, man. <laughs> when when I was a little, little kid, I, I watched the classics um, back when they were on uh, television, um, like Sailor Moon and Inuyasha and Dragon Ball Z. And, mm -hmm. you know, since then, like, I've still kept watching anime, of course. Um, but I also enjoy watching, um, like, Chinese dramas. And I also like watching um, various uh, Japanese shows that they have on Crunchyroll. And um, there are also some, like, little short clip sort of uh, soap opera dramas that they have on Facebook. I like popping a couple of those every once in a while. So, yeah, it's a good time. Yeah. And it's it's interesting for me because my my interest was numerous things because uh it was history at first because that's what I partly studied when I was in college and mostly because it was it was kind of easy and I was going for a communications degree and I was a radio geek and I wanted I was like I want a minor that I'm good at that I actually want to take an interest in. And Japan became part of it later on when I read some really interesting histories. And um, anime came along a little later, thanks to uh, mostly thanks to the children of uh, one of my former bandmates. And um, I always was interested in martial arts because I took it as a kid. And I guess for me, it was sort of I wanted to try something different. And I decided uh, with searching for Roy Buchanan, my latest book, 
and some of my earlier works, I said, let's try going someplace else. Um, yours seems to be more. I, you get, I get the entertainment aspect. Was there anything historical or about the geisha culture, perhaps, that that really struck with you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was always just fascinated with um, the visuals of um, mm-hmm. Japanese culture and history, uh, just, you know, pouring over um, history texts and then watching uh, No and Kabuki Theater on YouTube. I was just mm-hmm. so intrigued by the makeup and the decorations and the different outfits, especially the art of um, kimono creation. And mm-hmm. stumbling into learning about um, Geisha and Maiko, that just absolutely clicked with me because they're just so stunningly beautiful but they're also entertainers, but at the same time, they also have to be very educated and familiar with, um, you know, current events and diplomacy and all that. I mean, they are just the full package. And I guess I kind of, you know, fangirl look up to them. I just think that they're, you know, amazingly talented, beautiful people. And um, I actually had the opportunity. I uh, spent 14 days in Japan and I had some very, Um, amazing opportunities that most people don't get to have. I actually um, stayed at a ryokan, which is Mm a uh, Japanese family-run inn, and they had a tea house attached to it. So I actually got to have the full experience and have a party with a couple of Maiko, and I got to talk to them and drink with them and hang out with them, and that was really special. And then on top of it, I was granted the very special opportunity of being able to meet um, an Okasan, uh, which is the uh, proprietress that um, heads an Okia or a geisha house. And she actually mm-hmm. taught me the proper way of how to put on a kimono and put on the makeup and how to hold a fan and, you know, how to properly walk. And it was just, it was a very, very special day. And I'm very honored that I was able to have that kind of opportunity. And it's just, you know, it's just been a big part of me and a lot of my creative endeavors and, you know, I just really wanted to be able to share that in uh, book and art form. Well, that certainly was, must have been amazing. Um, you know, when we think of the culture surrounding geisha, we, we I think many who have never been to Japan or have never experienced it as you did so intimately, we think of more modern works. We think of like memoirs of a geisha or something like that. And um, as, 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 as well done as that was, uh, I wondered if that really ever really scratched the surface of the actual culture. I'm not sure for myself. Unfortunately, um, that's what I really discovered is uh, Memoirs of the Geisha is actually um, horribly inaccurate in that mm-hmm. it really perpetuates that stereotype that Geisha are courtesans or prostitutes, and they are yeah. not. Um, that whole world was very separate. It was, you went to Geisha to be entertained, to entertain your business partners and all that. And then if you wanted a little extra something, something, you went to the red light district and you paid for a courtesan Mm -hmm. and they don't have those anymore. Obviously it's been outlawed for a long time now, but the Geisha district is still alive and well because they are entertainers. They're not selling their bodies. And unfortunately, um, Memoirs of a Geisha really perpetuated that stereotype, and there was a huge outcry in Japan, obviously, because it was very upsetting to have that, you know, continuation. And 
I dug a little deeper and I actually found out that the original book was based on a real geisha and it was the author had gone to Japan and interviewed this geisha and he was supposed to write a book about her life and instead he wrote that. So then she Mm -hmm. came out with a book where she actually had her actual memoir written and it's called Geisha A Life and her name is uh, Miniko and it's, Mm -hmm. it's a wonderful book. That sounds inter- that sounds something to read. Um, I remember just thinking recently about it. Um, there was a, a short documentary or a report on the BBC, and I, I saw this only I saw this a few years ago, so I can't remember everything about it. But it had talked about how the geisha culture continues to flourish, or at least is still being kept alive to some extent. Where, you know. As you were talking about, you had the experience of the women dressing properly, the makeup, and learning how to play music, learning how to the way, so to speak. And I thought it was fascinating. Oh, absolutely. It's absolutely fascinating because it really brings together this big culmination of all these different aspects of Japanese history and Japanese culture and presenting it all in one package that you have music and theater and art and just all these other aspects that are very important to the culture all rolled into one profession, which is why I admire them so much is they they actually have to go to a separate school to learn all of these things in order to do their job. And it's very in-depth and they spend several hours every day perfecting these arts. And also, you know, as is customary in Japan, you can never be perfect or master a thing there's always room for improvement so you know i just love that it's all about the process you know there is never you're done with learning any of these things and that's life in itself you should, you never stop learning exactly well getting into this story um you have a character named yuki who is making her way up in the ranking system. Where did your inspiration for her come from? Was it from this visit? Was it one of the people you met, perhaps? Uh, No, Yuki isn't really based on a specific person so much as um, a trope that I find to be frustrating in a lot of these kind of stories is that Um, the main character will go from being in very poor conditions to suddenly being amazing and being the best thing ever, Um, Mm -hmm. such as in Memoirs of a Geisha, you know, she screws up and she becomes a maid where she wasn't even going to be a geisha anymore. And then she, you know, magically has some other character come along and saves the day. And then suddenly she's the most famous geisha in the whole Hanamachi. And that's just, so unrealistic and I wanted to create a character that I felt was more realistic because I feel that especially in this day and age of Instagram and just having social media in our faces we often lose touch with what it means to be average and that being average Mm -hmm. is not a bad thing that you don't have to be the best the most famous the most talented that the space that you occupy is you know, great just as it is. And so I wanted to create a character that's average and discovers that there's greatness in her averageness. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the thing that, that came across really well was that Yuki was clearly a young woman paying her dues. And 
you through the lessons and through the different events and through these sort of tribulations, you're seeing somebody who really is working to get there. And the hands are such a huge part of it because, you know, to play shamisen or to play any of these instruments, you must use your hands, but you must also care for them. And she gets picked at at times for your, your, your nails don't look good. We need to get that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's really important. Absolutely. It really is, um, and that was a thing that really struck me with reading the texts that I've read and just the experiences that I had in Japan, and also if you watch the performances carefully, you know, their hands are really their main instrumental tools for everything. It's, you know, the um, the main motivator of, you know, their grace and everything is pouring the tea, playing the instruments, holding the fan mm-hmm. that you know, if your hands aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, it doesn't matter what else the rest of your body is doing. It's wrong. Mhm. Mhm. And um, you, well, there's the thing. You brought us into this place. Tell us a little bit about the court and sort of like Yuki's circle, because the people around her all had such a role to play. Absolutely. Um, so traditionally in um, geisha culture you have a myco, which is an apprentice geisha, and they study under a full geisha who is called their onesan or sister. And that mm-hmm. geisha um, is traditionally usually a geisha in their okia. However, if all of the current geisha at the okia already have um, younger sisters, myco, that they're apprenticing, um, a geisha from a different um, Okia or geisha house will often be called upon, and usually it's a geisha house that has some sort of connection. So usually the, you know, proprietors would be friends or, you know, very Mm -hmm. close in some way. And in this case, I wanted to have an outside influence. I wanted Yuki's um, Onesan, Katsu, to be an outside geisha because I kind of wanted to expand the world. I didn't want it to be so centralized to only her okia, I wanted there to be, you know, more outside people so that people could get more perspective on how, on a larger scale, this world works. And I wanted Katsu to be um, more successful, not super amazing, but definitely more successful. That way, Yuki definitely had this person to look up to and aspire to and everything, um, which is, you know, the double-edged sword that she, you know, aspires to be like that, but at the same time, she very much feels the pressure of how can I live up to that. And then um, the other people that come into play, uh, the customers, or they're known as the gohiki, um, are the people that she interacts with on a daily basis. You know, in a certain way, those are kind of like her quote-unquote co-workers or clients. They're, you know, the people that she sees on a regular basis, and she entertains them, and she has to remember things about them, and, you know, know what they like and dislike and all that, and just you know, being able to expand out into the world, I purposely made the clients be a part of different aspects of the culture. So I had um, Minoru, which is, he owns a sake business, so that the readers can learn a little bit more about sake and the history of sake and all that. And then I also had mm-hmm. um, an artist who um, specializes in pottery so that they could learn a little bit more about that as well. So I kind of, you know, I guess cheated my way into being able to talk about a lot of different aspects of the culture without making it, you know, super overwhelming to the reader. 
Well, you did. You brought in these different characters. That leads me to a question of the customer. Uh, there mm-hmm. is no average customer for Geisha, but is there a stereotype that they have to be successful or wealthy in order to, to come to these people? Is there something, is there, say, an element of the society that would not be able to go see them, even if they had the money? Um, it's, it's definitely very money driven. Um, you have to be of a certain caliber to be able to afford to have even a geisha party just once. Like the one that I had in Japan, that was fairly expensive. It was, you know, a few hundred dollars just for the night. Um, Mm -hmm. but being a regular customer where you, um, basically it's, they sponsor the geisha so that they get to say, you know, oh yeah, that's, that's my geisha. You know, they're, it's, it's not like friend is not really the right word. It's more like a, a patron sort of mm-hmm. relationship. Like in the olden days when people would sponsor artists and sponsor dancers and singers and, you know, they were their special patron and they would give them gifts and money so that they can pursue their creative art and they get to brag, you know, oh yes, I helped be a part of, you know, this wonderful um, artistic culture and all that. So it's, it's bragging rights, it's status. Um, the only thing I can really imagine is that because the culture is also so driven by manners and politeness and rules, I guess if you're a horrible person who doesn't follow rules and acts really out of control and gross, I guess they would kick you out. But, you know, <laughs> I, I really feel like as long as you have the cash and you follow the rules, they don't really care who you are. Well, there's an interesting story there is that um, when, well, without giving it all away, someone eventually will express interest in Yuki. I was looking at it and trying to think, okay, where do we, where, you know, as, as I, and we may have already talked about this, there is a line somewhere along in here, and I think it is Minoru, of what does this man actually want? Is it, is he more, is he looking for more of a, to be a patron to Yuki or is he looking for something else? And it, it, for me, it's the question of where is the line drawn in terms of his, what he may and may not do, what he may and may not seek. Absolutely. So um, the rules are definitely different now in modern day um, for Geisha because of also with the rules of um sex work and things like that but Mm -hmm. um in the olden days um it was understood that um if a patron um had the money and also if the geisha approved of the relationship which usually more often than not was more so the okia approving of the relationship rather than the individual geisha um Mm -hmm. but a patron could graduate to the level of being a danna um, which is the Japanese word for husband, and it kind of means the same thing in this instance, in that basically the geisha becomes their official mistress. And this is very different from being a courtesan because this is a full relationship. It's not just, you know, oh, okay, now he gets to, you know, bang this geisha. It's, you know, very <laughs> much that he, you know, only patronizes this geisha. You know, it's very special, and then she gives him you know, extra privileges, not just the, you know, 
fun, sexy time. It's, you know, they will go to special events for them. They get a lot more time with the geisha. They get, you know, more access than the average client and also, of course, bragging rights and all that. Um, whereas with a core design, it's purely just, you know, boop, get in, get out. You don't really have a greater relationship with them, even at the Oiran level. Um, it's still very much just centered around that sexual act rather than having an actual relationship with that person. Mm. So having them as a Donna is kind of like basically having a secondary relationship with that person. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting thing too with a different, we're talking about a different society. Um, I wonder what does a more modern Japan think of geisha? They see it certainly as a place, it has a place in history, it has a place in culture, and it has a place in this is a part of us. Yes. How do how does modern Japan look at it? How does modern Japan look upon these kinds of relationships, that sort of thing? Um, well, like I said, the rules have really changed because of, you know, laws with sex work and abolishing the red light district and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it's really seen more as a preservation of um, a very important part of their culture, as mm -hmm. well as it's a very important part of their um, entertainment industry. So it's very much become more about the entertainment aspect rather than the um, client relationship aspect. I mean, it's definitely used as a status thing for, you know, important businessmen to basically show off, wow, I have enough money to be able to, you know, throw a geisha party and all that sort of thing. Um, but it's very much more about, you know, the, uh, the idea of when people go and see like Swan Lake or any classic ballet or opera, it's more about, you know, oh, we're going to go to this very culturally enriching thing and we're going to, <laughs> you know, enrich ourselves, you know, sort of thing. It's, it's become more like that these days. I see. I see. Well, the other thing, too, about about the book, and I, I remarked to this uh, as I was reading it, you you gave so much wondrous detail. And the appendix could be a book in itself with the, <laughs> uh, the names and the terminology and the explanation of that. It's almost like, and this is not a bad thing, this is almost like a textbook for anybody that is studying Japanese history because there are so many words there and names and things. And it's like you pay enough study to them. It's like you just see where they fit. So it was, it was a lot, it, obviously you put an incredible amount of work into that. Yeah, it, um, the full project took me about um, five years to complete. It was about three years of research and writing the story and then two years of uh, creating all the illustrations. And that actually was my intent with creating this book is I wanted it to double as um, almost a textbook of sorts that I wanted it to bridge this idea of presenting some very educational, historical, cultural information, but in a way that's also entertaining so that it's, you know, kind of this idea of you're learning without even realizing it sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That is cool. Well, Geisha Hand certainly was a very engrossing read for me, and I have to admit it was a pretty heavy one. It, it, it was heavier than a lot of what I have done, but it was like uh, it was certainly, and, you, and you've just explained it, that this was an exhaustive work. Uh, you can't really call it your life's work, though, because like we've said, we're still learning, <laughs> we're still growing, aren't we? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to ask a little more about you and some of the other things you do, but we also discussed there is this other work, completely different, uh, Freya's <laughs> Baby. This is more of a young adult work, and um, you made Freya, once again, a very relatable character as uh, those others around her. Tell us about this other work. Now, when did you start working on this, and uh, where did it all come from? So um, I've actually been working on um, a series of uh, romance novels, which um, Freya's Baby is a part of. Um, Currently, Mm -hmm. the three books that are out are Tearing Down the Wall, Freya's Baby, and then just recently last month, uh, Freya's Baby Shattered came out. Um, and they all have the same characters, um, but they take place in different situations. So the stories aren't like a series that go together. They're not chronological or anything like that. They're just, you know, same people, different problems sort of thing. And with um, Freya's Baby, I originally wrote the novel back in 2011, um, and then I didn't do anything with it until recently, Um, And basically, I just, I got the idea from that when I was in college, I got a lot of pressure from my professors that I needed to write about, quote unquote, real things. Um, So that was basically kind of the motivation for that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, first and foremost, I'm I'm a fantasy writer. I like going to pretend lands, so... Um, But yeah, so I, you know, kind of dug deep into, you know, what is quote unquote real life. And I just felt the idea of, you know, a high school teenage pregnancy. I mean, you can't get any more real than that. Um, Mm -hmm. It is a major problem that, you know, still happens even today, unfortunately. And, you know, I just really wanted to explore that idea, um, but in a way that doesn't demonize either party, um, I really wanted to explore, you know, what does it feel like for somebody to go through that kind of situation and, you know, perhaps bring some solace to, you know, maybe some kids that are going through the same situation or maybe, you know, give some insight to, you know, if there are parents that are having to deal with that kind of situation with their kids, Um, as well as I've been told by the people who have read it that it's just a really fun read, that they just get a lot of enjoyment and warm fuzzies from reading it so you know regardless of your motivation for reading it it's you know it's a fun read and it's you know got a lot of good stuff in it that was an interesting thing too uh, it tying into that was the dual point of view where you you bounce between freya and alex and um I was always told, and and this is something I had to do in my writing because I I guess my writing just can get confused, but I was always told if you change the point of view, you've got to change the chapter or break it up. And, well, you did pretty much a similar thing that I do. You put a little sort of space in the dialogue. It's like, okay, we're jumping over to what Alex is going to say now. Um, How difficult was it to bounce between the two as you were writing, or did you sort of put the characters, did you write the characters differently, or how did that happen? So when I originally wrote the novel, I had actually written the entire thing in third person, and so Mm -hmm. because it was in third person, I was able to bounce between Freya and Alex easily because of the type of point of view it was, Um, but then when I decided to finally, you know, take it out, dust it off, and 
um, send it off for publication, I had learned in that market that um, romance novels sell way better if they're in first person. Mm-hmm. And um, when I had to start you know, doing that, I realized that I was going to lose a lot of important information and context if I completely cut out one of their perspectives and chose only one of them to tell the story. And I realized I needed both of them to tell the story. So basically just kind of reading through the original draft and realizing naturally where the point of view was switching and just kind of doing that, you know, like chapter break sort of style just came naturally to be able to tell the story. Mm-hmm. At times, uh, Freya's baby can get pretty graphic and get pretty rough. And it was like, I think we all know people that have been in those experiences or perhaps it was us. Um, there were details in the storyline that showed, I thought, some intimate knowledge or experience. Was it the people, was it as much the folks around you or were, or how did it work that way? Um, so, yeah, there are some um, parts that talk about uh, some of the abuse that Freya suffers at home, um, as well as uh, my style of writing for my romance novels, as I do get a little bit explicit with the um, sexual scenes. Um, a big part of that is not so much from personal experience. I had, well, I mean, still have <laughs> lovely parents. Um, and I have a good family. I'm very blessed. Um, but a lot of that came from just uh, people that I knew growing up when I was in school who did not come from the best homes and also just reading in other literature um, characters who also had bad home situations. And then, um, unfortunately, I myself have dealt with um, some abusive romantic relationships. So just, you know, kind of taking that general struggle of abuse that so many people suffer from in different ways and being able to tackle that in the story felt very natural because, um, you know, oftentimes when um, a teenager, you know, becomes pregnant in high school, there's probably more going on behind the scenes rather than just, you know, they're not practicing safe sex. There's usually some other issues, unfortunately, that are also at play. So it just seems kind of a natural way for her life to be. Well, the other thing that that really made it work really was, was the fact that you were willing to go into those places. And for me, it's like, I write young adult mostly, but I call it young adult slash new adult because it's really, as I, I like to call what I write, it's young people dealing with big people problems because I know what I went through and I know what pretty much everybody around me did. <laughs> and there was nothing wrong with that. I, in fact, um, that's one of the things that sometimes I just feel this lacking with young adult is, or even in, and in romance too, romance, it's always, you know, it's, it's always so romantic and it's so oh wonderful and all <laughs> that. And it's not always, it, it never is. <laughs> and so was there ever a trepidation of writing about it like that and thinking, oh, I'm about to share something? Um, not so much. Um, the stuff that I choose to share in my writing is stuff that I have been able to feel comfortable with sharing. Um, it's mm-hmm. things that I've already felt, you know, comfortable sharing on a personal level, you know, saying, yeah, this ha- it has been my experience. Um, whereas the things that I don't feel comfortable sharing, I just don't. <laughs> Simple as right. that. Right. Well, 
this gives us uh, a real look into your writing style and everything. Now about you, Alice. Uh, tell us about your background. <laughs> tell us about your beginnings. Oh, well, um, this will this will sound a little bit, you know, king of the mountain or anything, and I'm trying to be as factual as possible without sounding like a horrific narcissist or anything, but... <laughs> Um, (laughs) I've been a writer from a very young age. Um, my parents actually told me when I was about three years old that I, before I learned how to read and write, I would actually sit with my dad and dictate stories to him and he would write them down for me. I mean, you know, of course they were little three-year-old stories, but you know, it's literally been since then. And then once I learned how to read and write, Um, that's basically all I wanted to spend my time doing was, you know, making my own little books about things and I would draw little pictures to go with them. And I was also very lucky in that my dad actually worked for, um, Arthur Anderson, the big company that, you know, the whole Enron thing that happened. And so Mm -hmm. because of those connections he had, I actually had my own laptop by age like six. And so I just carried that thing around with me everywhere. And I was just constantly tapping on it, you know, writing my own little stories. And that evolved to, I started writing my first novels when I was 12. Oh, that's amazing. And yeah. <laughs> when, when you, when you look and of, and of course, I think, I think my first novel was a short one when I was about 14 and um, it was very short and it really was horrible, but it's like, you think you've just <laughs> written something really good, don't you? <laughs> I mean, of course you do. You think you're fantastic. <laughs> That's what we're <learning> for. <laughs> well, it, well, it sounds like it was really cool that your your folks were really uh, supportive of that. Now, were they as artistic in their own ways? Um, yes and no. So my dad is not creative in the least he's an accountant um his favorite thing to do is to work in the yard and make the lawn beautiful um Mm -hmm. but he is very super supportive of me and even though he is not really a big reader he has actually read a couple of my novels um to support me and he really liked them he thought they were fantastic um he read my first novel um love of the sea which is a fantasy fiction about mermaids and he also read geisha hands Um, whereas all of my writing skills come from my mom and, um, unfortunately she has a novel of her own that's been sitting in a box in her closet for like 20 years. And I'm like, mom, I can help you get that published. And she just, I think she's just, you know, afraid of rejection and, you know, it's been so long and stuff like that. But, I'm very blessed to come from a line of women who are very talented at writing, like my mom and um, my uh, great-great-grandmothers were also involved in writing. In fact, when we were cleaning out my great-grandmother's farmhouse, we found some uh, patriotic songs that um, one of my, uh, I don't know how many greats back, uh, grandmother had written for the Civil War. And they're like official published songs and stuff. So I come from a very long lineage of writers. So, you know, I'm very blessed that I have that kind of wellspring to draw from. 
That that is that is pretty fascinating, um, and it sounds like you were exposed to so many things. Like, uh, you know, your folks were cool with you watching like anime on television and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, in terms of well, that we know about that. But it's like um, books, art, music. What else got to you early on that really moved you? Oh, absolutely. So I was definitely, um, I call it, I was my parents' little science experiment. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> they started teaching me um, the French language at age five. And mm-hmm. by the time I was seven, they were having me read their college textbooks. Um, my mom threw her entire works of Shakespeare at me. Um, and I would just devour books to the point where my parents started buying me encyclopedias because they didn't know what else to throw at me to read because I would read all the books they bought me and I've read all of the books that I personally felt were worth reading in the library of every school that I've attended. Mm. Yeah, I I really I remember specifically the libraries of my, the tiny library at my little elementary school and then the ones at the schools I attended after that um I probably didn't bring home I certainly didn't bring home stacks of books like a couple of my friends did but um it was such a it, to me it was like going to the library was fun other people would grump about saying oh we got to go study and I'm like well I'm going to go find something to read <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I, that was, I was the very thing. Big. Sorry, go ahead. Any any authors or anyone in particular that that stood out for you? Oh, very much. So, my main lady, Juliette Merillier. I discovered mm-hmm. the Seven Waters trilogy by her when I was in high school, and that changed my writing forever. Um, the style that she wrote in and the things that she wrote about, um, it's specifically about Irish Celtic lore. It really mm-hmm. changed the way that I thought about crafting a story and how to put in details and how to weave in history and things like that. So that was a huge impact for me. Yeah. And, uh, for me, I was I was very fortunate that I had two of my, my I'm the youngest in my family. Um, I had two older siblings who were great readers of fantasy, in particular Tolkien. And when you get The Hobbit given you as a book when you're nine, and you've only heard it, but you don't know what it is, and you're reading it, and it's like, I admittedly didn't quite get a lot of it at first, but then all of a sudden it, it just clicked with me, and I started reading Lord of the Rings when I was 10. And this is long before they were... <laughs> a thing and people were mm-hmm. saying what are you reading you're reading what and i think the thing that that really helped me was tolkien proved to me that there are no boundaries to your imagination you can create whatever you want if you really want to do it and that just stuck with me i think now is is the how much he put into it because i'm the appendices of those books go on forever. And I would read those just as much as I read the stories themselves. Yeah. I read um, the Lord of the Rings series when I was 14. And I actually was very blessed that a family friend gifted me an original set um, that was from the Mm seventies. And I read them and I enjoyed them. But in terms of the style of writing, it's rather dry 
Um, mm-hmm. And I just didn't jive with it as much as I have with other fantasy stories. Like, don't get me wrong. It's a fantastic story. And I love the story. But in terms of the mm-hmm. writing style, it didn't yep. really influence me so much as it showed me this is not how I want to write things. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. I also read um, Narnia around the same time too. And, you know, I got a kick out of that. It was really enjoyable and I loved the details and stuff like that. But um, I felt that, you know, some smaller, less well-known fantasy authors are really what influenced um, my style of writing much more than any of the classics did. Mm -hmm. And how about some of the more modern authors or anything like that? Is there anyone that, you know, might seem relevant, or at least you know who they are. That 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 sort of you might, you, you, when they come out, it's like, oh, I'm going to get that. Is there anybody like that? Um, modern authors, uh, like big name authors. Any, any at all. Any, okay. Um, yeah, I I'm not really into a lot of the current big name authors uh, so much right now because I feel like a lot of them just try very hard to cram modern things into their stories, even if they have no business being there. Um, mm-hmm. But I do very much enjoy um, the authors that I actually personally know, um, you know, friends of mine, I'm a big part of the Chicago writing community. And I'm very lucky to be friends with so many talented authors. And I really enjoy their works, not just because they're my friends, but because, you know, I have read their works and I really enjoy them. And some of them, um, I've gotten to read works that aren't even published yet that I really hope are published, um, such as my friend Rhiannon Taylor. I mean, oh my God, I could listen to her read a story until the cows come home. And, um, yeah. And, uh, my friend Brendan Detzner, he writes some fantastic, like, fantastical horror sort of stories where he just combines some, like, really, you know, Brothers Grimm sort of stuff with really hardcore horror. And it's just fascinating to see how he twists that together. And then, of course, my friend K.M. Herkes, I mean, she really knows how to, like, keep the story moving. And it's fast-paced and it's in your face, but it's also really fun. And sometimes you have to flip back a couple pages and be like, wait, hold on. What just happened? <laughs> and that's and that's cool to have that kind of a community of people around you. And it's also great that you know that you're open to what they're doing. And it's like and uh, that's a really neat thing. Yeah. Well, it's also true that uh, here, I mean, I, I live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, so it's like uh, it's it's sort of a smaller thing. But it's like around here. Um, with Brown Posey Press and our our parent company and that we have a number of different authors and we will come across people and I mean I will name drop people people on my label like H.A. Callum and then um, my good friend Olivia Barrier who writes she is self-published and uh, she's the one who got me to go to Cleveland Concoction last year and to Sci-Fi Valley Con and so forth so she opened a couple of doors and it's just fun to sit with with people like Olivia and just talk about our writing and it's like you hear where they're coming from and it's like oh look at that. you know you, you're like it's not just you, you're reminded I am reminded constantly it's not just my style that other person's style is just as valid and all of a sudden they will say something and it's like oh wow I didn't think of it like that 
you know, and you start scratching mm-hmm. your head, but it was re- it's really cool that way, though. It really is. And I'm very lucky to be able to have access to that kind of community here in Chicago, especially because there's several um, writers groups where mm-hmm. we meet up. Um, I mean, not right now because of the pandemic, unfortunately, but um, we meet up on a regular, on a monthly basis and it's like an open mic style thing where we all hang out and, you know, read some great stories and talk to each other, you know, over a couple of glasses of wine or a couple of pints and, it's just, you know, it's so fun being able to have access to other authors and even other writers and, you know, be able to workshop and help people to get their writing to where it needs to be. And then um, recently in the past couple of years, I've kind of helped build us up where now we're like this huge power collective where we'll, you know, show up to conventions now and we'll share a table, which is actually more like five tables all put together so we're kicking up like a whole wall you know we're like welcome to book avenue basically and it's you know, just really <laughs> well, fun cool. doing that together yeah and you know doing panels together and just you know being able to you know share that experience it's you know it's really awesome to kind of have a team behind you rather than you know flying solo yeah, it's interesting, too, because it's like I have tag teamed with uh, people uh, from my label and that sort of thing at different times. And some it's it's a matter of finding the right people because each person's style can be a little bit different. Some of us are, are very quiet and kind of reserved and others are a little more loud and a little more expressive. And it's it's trying to get together as a team is, is a little hard, but if you've got one like that, that must be incredible fun. And it's like, and it's also like, you don't have to be sitting at the table for the entire convention. You can actually, it's like, I'm going to go take a walk. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really nice to have, you know, people have your back and, you know, we're, none of us are, you know, we're not published under the same publisher. So, you know, we're all there for ourselves and it's really nice, you know, to have friends that are totally willing to, you know, chat your book up to somebody, even though, you know, they're technically not going to financially benefit from that, but they're going to do it because they're your friend. All right. I must now ask about Cloud Orchid Publishing. Now, is this your imprint or tell me a little about that? So um, Cloud Orchid Publishing goes way back um, to my college days when I was working as a nationally touring model at the same time as uh, going to college. I became friends with a photographer. Uh, his name is Brian Thompson of Graffiti Photographic. And we became really good friends um, going to events together, which turned into us going on like these grand caravan adventures where we'd like travel cross country with like, you know, a crew of like 30 people and, you know, do all these oh, wow. crazy fashion editorials and stuff. And, we kind of evolved into um, going from submitting these editorials and stuff to magazines to this isn't very hard. We can make our own magazine. So then we made Cloud Orchid magazine, which um, was this alternative fashion magazine. And we got invited to cover all of these fashion shows and events and stuff in Chicago and the greater Midwest area. And to be perfectly honest, we got bored of doing that. Um, so then we created Cloud Orchid Publishing, where we started making, we call them art books, where we combine his photography with my writing, my short stories and my poetry, and then also sometimes my artwork to create this mm-hmm. whole like 
narrative, basically, through all these different mediums all put together. And after uh, publishing, I think it was something like somewhere between 15 or 20 of those, um, I kind of realized, I was like, we can just publish my books, too, if I want to. So (laughs) we started doing that, um, where basically I've kind of assigned which novels um, that I have on my to-do list I want to submit to other publishers and then which ones I want to publish through Cloud Orchid Publishing, not so much because it's quote-unquote easier, so much as um, there are different motivations behind it. So like with Geisha Hands, a traditional publisher would never have published that book because it has color illustrations in it, that alone they're not going to want to invest in that because it's very expensive. And then also it took us three months to figure out the um, formatting that we wanted to be able to fit in all of those illustrations and the footnotes and the glossary and all that. And it was a huge to do. And, you know, a publisher isn't going to want to spend that kind of time on figuring out just the layout of the book. Mm -hmm. Very true. So um, basically I use it as, you know, for the books that I want to do that a traditional publisher is did in investing the time and effort into, as well as it's also for the books that <clears throat> I feel it's a, more of a priority to get it out there and more importantly, get it on the Kindle reading list. Um, whereas mm-hmm. the, I feel, you know, it's more important as like an actual book book that, you know, I do want to take the time and do the, you know, actual like, submit to a publisher process and all that like I did with uh, my mermaid novel that was see. Not that any of my mm-hmm. books are quote unquote more important than others. They just have different priorities. Right. Now here's the thing too is with your painting and uh, the, the modeling and all of that, um, you're wearing a lot of hats. So it's like time management is something you must really have to be mindful of. Oh yeah. <laughs> and the question becomes do you ever sleep, right? <laughs> I get asked that all the time. Um, The answer used to be no. (laughs) And my therapist told me, girl, if you don't slow down, you're going to have a heart attack and die by the time you're 40. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like bad plan. So I've, I've actually slowed down a bit in the past couple of years um, with all of my projects and craziness for the sake of um, being more mindful of my physical health and my mental health, but mm-hmm. um, I'm definitely still living at a far faster pace than your average human. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I'm very lucky that, um, I mean, you know, besides the pandemic, which really threw a wrench in my life plans, but um, beyond that, I've been able to kind of cobble together this combination of different things that, you know, pay rent and pay the basics that I need so that I can just live as a crazy sparkle human and, you know, not have to do a nine to five. <laughs> well, that's cool. Now, what is next for Alice? What What are you, I mean, the pandemic obviously puts a damper on going out and appearances, but what do you have planned and uh, what's your plan for 2020? So I do have a lot of really exciting things um, happening. It's basically, I've just kind of switched priorities on um, my project list since I can't really go out to conventions to physically sell my books and my art. I've kind of had to depend more on online sales and 
figuring out how to better harness that. So I've been really building up my online marketing campaigns uh, for both my writing and my artwork. And it's been really interesting to, you know, just really learn those skills a lot better than I have in the past and really focus on that more, as well as I recently published um, Freya's Baby Shattered, which is the alternative storyline to Freya's Baby, where she loses the baby and dealing with mm. grief and mental illness and stuff like that. And then I'm also currently working on my next novel, which I will be um, submitting to publishers, uh, Succumb to Darkness, which is a dark vampire fantasy, um, kind of pseudo French Revolution vibe going on with that. And because I'm bilingual, um, it's going to be partially in French uh, okay. with translations and stuff like that. And then um, I'm very excited. Uh, just recently this week, I launched um, a new project that I'm doing with um, one of my author friends. It's called Red Velvet Stories, which is a Patreon where you can subscribe and read uh, chapter by chapter serial stories of uh, basically erotica. So super fun, sexy time stories. And okay. Then, um, <laughs> And then I have um, four other writing projects that I'm kind of working on in the background. I'm finishing up uh, the illustrations for my sixth poetry book collection, Synesthesia Fables. And then I'm also uh, doing the writing for uh, my next romance novel, Clover Companion. And then I'm going to start working on my next historical fiction novel, which will actually be technically a speculative history novel uh, about Marie Antoinette, but it shall be, what if they escaped Paris and made oh, it wow. to Metz? Yeah, so that'll be really fun. All right, well, where can readers and patrons of your art and works find you, like your website or whatever? Oh, I am all over the place. Um, so the best places to find my work are on my general Instagram, which is littlealice06, kind of my main central hub where you can find all of the things with the stuff that I'm doing. Um, if you want specifically Cloud Orchid Publishing stuff, we do have a website, cloudorchidpublishing.com. We have our full catalog of books on there, as well as I also write the blog on there, kind of talking about what's coming up next and some fun behind-the-scenes details on the work that I do. Um, I also have a YouTube and a Twitter, um, also more general sort of stuff. The YouTube is more toward my modeling and my performance stuff. Both of those are also little Alice 06. Um, and then uh, the Patreon, as I said, is Red Velvet Stories. So yeah, those are all the places you can find me. <laughs> Well, all right. Well, Alice, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fast hour, and it has been really informative. And, well, thank you for doing this, and all the best to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been splendid.
All right. Thank you. This wraps up another edition of the Brown Posey Press Show. My guest has been Little Alice, author of the books Geisha Hands, Freya's Baby, and others. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of Searching for Roy Buchanan and the upcoming sequel, Call It Love. A programming note, a new anthology is being produced by our parent company, Sunbury Press Books. This will include perspectives, think pieces, and short articles on the coronavirus. After the pandemic, Visions of Life post-COVID-19 is available at Sunbury Press store.com slash new releases. We will also have a series of shows involving the authors who contributed to this series through the month of May. We will hope you check out the anthology and these programs. Thank you for being with us. This is the Book Speak Network. <laughs>